Welcome to episode 546 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, team, welcome along to episode 546 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. I've got to say, it's not Coach John Newsom today, it's just Bevan James Isles here. And because we're in our holiday season, always in our holiday season, this show is a little bit different. And what's going to happen today is we're going to do things. First of all, I actually sat down with Terenzo Butzoni last week and just had a bit of a chat to him about the races he's had recently, what's going to be happening next year and some kind of deeper insight into kind of life, which is kind of cool. So we sit down and have an interview with him for about 30 minutes. And then the second half of the show, what we actually do is, from my show, I have a show called The Bevan James Isle Show, the Fitness Behaviour Podcast. And this year I interviewed a guy called Dr. Anders Eriksson. Now Dr. Anders Eriksson is just a guru when it comes to expertise and he wrote a book called Peak the Secrets from this New Science of Expertise. Now Dr. Anders Eriksson has spent his whole academic career trying to figure out what creates success. Now you may not have heard of him but you definitely probably have heard definitely probably <laughs> have heard of some of his work. Now if you've heard of the rule of 10,000 hours which is popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers about five or six years ago basically that was Anders Ericsson's study and so it kind of shows the level of person you know that rule of 10,000 hours became this very popular thinking in in the world around the time of that release of that book Malcolm Gladwell kind of exposed the study to the world and it's interesting because Anders actually slightly disagrees with how Gladwell interpreted his study so but I interviewed him on my show earlier this year around August I think it was and the guy a the guy is just a top guy but b also just the insight in this interview is, you know, I love interviewing people and I love it when you get people who have just this kind of body of work and knowledge and you kind of just to get to dig deep with those people and Anders Ericsson was one of those interviews I was just kind of smiling on the inside as I'm interviewing this person because it's a very, very special, intelligent man. So I'm going to put those on, but let's just, before we get into it, I just want to say sponsors of the show, uh, we've got athlinks.com social networking for endurance athletes we've got uh, xendurance.com and that's your lactic buffer and also the patrons and just want to say as we're heading into the end of 2016 thank you to all the patrons throughout the year because you really make a massive difference to the show actually i'm gonna do it. i'm gonna do it i know we don't want to do an ad straight away but i'm gonna do an ad straight away because i just while i was kind of setting up to do today's show notes i pulled up athlinks and i thought to myself it's so easy to join Athlinks nowadays and we're in that time of the year where you may have a bit more time in your life because really it's most people this time of year is downtime. You have a few days off work, you know, you get a bit of time just to kind of catch up on some things that you want to do and you may have been listening to our show for years now and thought to yourself, I really should join Athlinks but I never get around to doing it. Well, if you go to Athlinks.com, nowadays where you can just use your Facebook login to now sign up for Athlinks, you, so you basically go to Athlinks You'll see on the front page is a sign up or a join on, join now. So click on the join now and then you just go there and you click on your Facebook page and it has how to join. It's got Google, Facebook and email. And if you click on your Facebook link, then it'll take you through there or use your Facebook account and then you're in. And I tell you, if you haven't done this, once you've joined, 
you'll instantly want to start finding all the races that you have ever done on Athlinks. And one thing you can do is you can put your name in and it will search on all its database and be able to find races with with your name in there. Now, it might not always be you if you have a common name, but you can claim the races that you know are yours. The other thing you can do is you can look for the races you have done. So let's say you did Ironman New Zealand back in 2003. Well, you can go back to that race, find your name, and then claim that result. And it's a fun little holiday project, and it's a project you won't regret doing because in the future, you'll be able to look back on all those races. So I, I can tell you, I raced, you know, nowadays I'm a bit more of a recreational racer, but back in the day, I did so many races that I can't even remember I did. And if I'd been disciplined, or if athletics was around, especially in the first part of my career, I'd have a record of that now, and I don't have that, and I kind of regret that. So deep down, you should do this too. So in your holiday break, go to athletics. If you haven't joined up, it's really simple. Click on join now, click on the Facebook link, Facebook link and you are good to go. So there you go, there's athletics.com. Right, I'm going to put the interview with Terenzo on right now. Here we go. Here's Terenzo. Right, I've got a Kiwi legend, Kiwi legend on the show today, <laughs> Terenzo Butzoni. How you going, mate? <laughs> Thanks, Bevan. Hey, mate. What you know? You're in your, you're, it's an interesting time for you because we're going to talk about the races you've just recently had, where you kind of dominated the dojo. But are you looking at doing Ironman New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. New to going Ironman New Zealand is on the cards, and it's a big goal of mine. I uh, I had a great race at Ironman WA few weeks ago and um yeah i guess it was a breakthrough iron man for me and now i guess the true test true test is going to be if i can replicate that kind of performance in talpo so let's so let's take a step back because you hit kona kona looked like it was going pretty great for you and then just went bad i can't remember were you a bit did, did you get upset stomach or something um in kona I, I actually started swelling really badly on the bike and got a little bit dizzy, got off the bike, I could barely see the ground and I uh, got, got to 30Ks in the marathon but I, at that point I just couldn't just couldn't put my legs in front of each other, They uh, just yeah, the nutrition and hydration hadn't really gone through to the muscles, it was just sitting in the periphery and making me look like an Oompa Loompa. Was it, wh- wh- how did you, you feel walking away from that race? Ah, uh, yeah, I was, I was gutted, I'd sacrificed a lot this year. Um, I, mean, I, I spent a lot of time up in Girona traveling or tra- training up there with Jan Fredino and Nick Castellane and uh, a lot of time away from my family and and uh, yeah I guess I dropped the ball a lot on on being a being a, a good father and a good good husband to to make the commitment for yeah more recovery better training and uh, and keep my eye on the prize um, when things don't go that well at, at that one one big race where where all the eyes are on on you it's uh it's yeah it's pretty distraught and i left there i it was i guess i, I was able to take take a bit of uh, a, a good good learning experience out of it um and i i was looking down the road of hypernatremia that was causing my swelling but i don't think it was quite that uh but yeah we we looked down a whole lot of different avenues and i think we got to the bottom of what was causing the swelling and uh yeah, seemed seem to seem to nail it on the head a few weeks later in Bustleton. So, is the swelling something you experience a lot? Yeah, mainly in mainly in hotter races when there's more stress on my body, um, and uh, and definitely more over the Ironman distance. But um, yeah, it's kind of been there or thereabouts for the last five years or so. So, what was the approach going into Bustleton? What were you kind of? You know, obviously, you want to win the bloody thing, but like, you know, what was? <laughs> it, did anything change in the way? Obviously, you're peaking for Kona, but. You know, were there any changes? Um, well, 
the the one thing we did we changed with uh, the hydration plan was actually um, did a bunch of testing and realized I was taking twice as much sodium on board as as oh, I really? should. Wow! Uh, so cut cut that back uh, to a more conservative number, and then I yeah there, there was no pressure really, and I, I felt good. Training had training had gone good. I kind of changed things up a little bit since since Kona and. Uh, had a couple of good races, Miami 70.3, Island House Invitational. Yeah, you had a good uh, race here, didn't you? And, uh, yeah, just, I, I felt good. So I just I just went out and, uh, yeah, knocked on the door and thought I'd see what happens. Tell, tell us about the day because, you know, like, what a performance. Like, mind-blowingly awesome. <laughs> you know, like, you know, as an athlete, and especially a guy who races as much as you do, you kind of, there's the good, the bad, and, and the great, isn't there? And then there's a kind of that mid, you know, and to, it sounds like, well, it looks like you had a day where just everything went to plan. So maybe just talk us through your day. Yeah, cool. I, um, yeah, I, I did. I, I had a had a really good day there. I got got in the swim. Uh, um uh, Nick Castellane and Clayton Patel kind of got a bit of a gap on the group where I was sitting next to Andy Potts, and uh, so the other guy, the other two guys, got a bit of a gap, and I was just playing cautious. I thought, oh, Andy won't let them get away. Andy won't let them get away. Andy won't. Come on, Andy. Let's Come go. on, Andy. All of a sudden, Andy turned the outfit burners on, and uh, and we we yeah we bridged up to to those two up the front. Um, and other than that, this one was pretty uneventful. We got you swim around the Bustleton Jetty, uh, swimming, swimming back in kind of two kilometres to three kilometres in. It got really choppy. Um, probably a little bit of seasickness setting in. <laughs> and uh, and then yeah, just uh, there were there was a decent group of us. I think there were about five of us coming coming in, five to six of us. Um, and then running, yeah, got out of the water, running through transition. I was actually. And once I got off the beach, off the soft sand, I was like, I actually feel quite good. Oh, let's wow. uh, let's just let's just turn the screws a little bit and see if we can see if we can get rid of Andy for for a bit. <laughs> and um, yeah, blasted blasted through transition, jumped on the bike. Uh, Clayton and Nick were still kind of at the front of that group, and I said, let's let's go, boys. Let's let's make a bit of a gap. And jumped on the front, and uh, Clayto actually dropped off pretty soon. And and Nick, who I'd spent a lot of time this year with training uh he he jumped on my wheel and well uh yeah 10 10 meters behind me and and away we went and we were putting some great time into into that chase group um i think almost three minutes an hour so about a minute every 20 every 20 minutes of riding we're putting an extra minute into them oh wow doing the, doing the math in my head going oh, this is uh this is pretty good get off the bike with at least 12 12 minutes lead mm. <laughs> and um that was great, great to have the company with nick but unfortunately uh, he, yeah, I guess he made, he made a smart decision to to back things off at 60 kilometres and, and stick to his own race plan. And uh, where I thought I was going to back off my power a little bit every every hour, I um I actually felt felt quite good and managed to sustain sustain good power on the bike until uh, about 40 minutes to go. And at that point, things yeah things started to get a little little ugly. Uh, the, the power dropped off quite a bit. But I figured I figured everyone would be in the same boat at 180 k's on on that flat course using the same muscles. You're not you're not really spreading the love much mm. uh, in, among your legs, and uh, just just stayed arrow and just thought about getting to the end of that bike as quick as I could. And uh, yeah, I guess when when you start when you start running, um, after, especially after after a harder bike, you can you can tell pretty quickly whether it's going to be a horrible run or a not so bad run, and 
running through transition, I was like, oh yeah, this 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 could potentially be quite good. I didn't I didn't blow up too bad on the bike, and uh, yeah, just just went out on the run. It was it was a great run course. It's four laps, but essentially it's eight laps because you run through town and go the opposite way halfway through the lap. So is it kind of like and, a figure eight? Is it? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Okay. Um, and had oh, just unreal spectator support. My physio was up there with me, um, <laughs> and I, I got. Probably, probably a little too cocky after the first lap. Though. So 10, 10 kilometers in, I ran past him. I said, oh, well, why couldn't Kona be this easy? <laughs> oh, did you? I, I actually saw on, on your Facebook page, there's a photo. It must have been at this point, and you're running past, and you look pretty happy, I have to say. You didn't look like you were doing it hard. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, about 16K, so just, just before I came back through that town section to head out, head out the opposite way, Things started getting a little bit hairy. I was like, "Oh, yep, I can feel my legs now." That was uh, that was a bit of amateur hour, relaxing so much and uh, and thinking the race was over. You still got what did I have? Twenty twenty six k's to go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was good. I managed to uh, key off some of the age groupers, kind of on their on their first laps, running running way too quick on the way out. Um, so I jumped jumped on with them a few times. Got kept kept my pace down around the four minute four minutes per k, and uh. With 10k's to go, I I took a split on Andy, so I still had seven minutes, and I quickly calculated in my head. I I've got 42 seconds per kilometer I can lose, and uh, and still be okay. So I um yeah I it was hard that last 10k's, but but I guess in the back of my mind I was I was really enjoying it, like just finally being able to put together put together an Ironman race that that I that that I thought I was capable of all these years. Um, and uh, well, yeah, it wasn't until kind of passing passing the finish line to do the last out and back, so four or three and a half k's to go. They go, they said over the loudspeaker, he's got 17, 17 minutes to break the record. And uh, I heard that, and I was like, oh, geez, that's that's pretty cool. I didn't didn't even think about the record. And uh, yeah, so I guess everything went went quite well. <laughs> well, well. For you, you know, you're a, you're a seasoned athlete. What does it mean to get under sub eight? Seasoned athlete, you're calling me old, Evan. Well, we're actually going to talk about that in a second because John John often gives you a bit of, uh, an un. Well, we have a debate about you, and he thinks it may be athletic age, you know, because you've been such an athlete for. Like, when did you actually start being what you'd consider an, an athlete? Yeah, I guess first world titles uh, when I was fifteen. Okay, so okay. You, you know, and so John, you know, in some ways says that you know, while you're only thirty-one, you know, your athletic age is a lot older than a lot of guys out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, seasoned. Okay. Yeah, so so, so we'll <laughs> give you seasoned, but but so but what does it mean to get the sub eight? You know, because I know I know for a lot of people, is it sub ten, the sub nine, the, you know, even the half hours mean a lot. But even for a pro, a seasoned pro, uh, does it does it mean a lot to to what does it mean to get that sub eight? Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool, I guess. In the scheme of things, it doesn't really doesn't mean that much because it's. I mean, it's it's a time and um, yeah. I mean, it's real cool. The ten, I think ninth or tenth fastest Ironman time of yeah all time. So so that's that's pretty cool. Fastest time by a New Zealander or Australian, which which is cool. But um, I guess my my sights have always been set on on the big race in in Kona, and um, and this is yeah this is just a, a good stepping stone. Um, Although now, now when you when you start going fast, when you start going under eight hours, you go, oh wow, that world records that world record seems pretty enticing. <laughs> oh really? So it becomes a different level now. <laughs> so 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 with this, you know, 
70.3 is you just dominate dojo. You, you know, you know, just long history of just being such a great athlete at the level. Ironman's always been that kind of, that thing that, you know, come on, Torino, get that next level. And this race seems to have just been that kind of, your potential has been shown. How much does that help you in your kind of self-belief in this? Or, you know, or has anything changed or it's just, finally I get to prove what I believe? Like, what's, what does that mean for you within yourself? Yeah, I... I guess I knew I, I had I had a performance like that in me. I just um, it was getting frustrating that I wasn't being able to execute to that ability um, for oh shit eight eight or so years. Um, so it's it's uh, it's great. It's, for me, it just feels like a great achievement that, that I've been been able to do. It's a big big box that's been ticked, and um, and hopefully. Uh, well, hopefully it's the start of start of great things to come with my Ironman career. Does, does it sh- did it teach you anything that actually, you know, so now we've reached a higher level, obviously the goal is to sustain that level and be consistently at that place, you know, throughout the rest of my career. Uh, did, did this race actually teach you anything or give you anything that gives you a better confidence or better belief that you'll be able to do that? Oh, for sure. I mean, it gives, gives you, gives me a lot, gives me a lot of confidence um, and and belief in myself that, that I'm able to, to, to race at that power and, and that speed and, um, and, and be able, yeah, be able to keep getting, getting something out of my body. But I guess the, the real learning has, uh, has come over the last eight years, kind of that bashing your head against the door and kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but never, never quite being able to get there. Um, it's been really uh, a lot of character building and, and, um, I think, yeah, I think that's probably th- those trials and tribulations over full distance Ironman racing over the last eight years have probably made me made me a little bit tougher, made me a little more resilient. Mm, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so then the next week you, you you think back of this, I'm going to go do another race. So we we were kind of talking on the show, and we were thinking, oh, we won't be doing that race. And then you went over to it was Abu Dhabi, was it? Uh, Bahrain seventy point three. Bahrain, sorry, Bahrain seventy point three, and. Uh, and and you bloody took the thing out. So so what was the, did you were you always going to do that race even after? Did you think maybe I won't, or what was the kind of the mindset leading into that race? I I, I always wanted to do it. I I kind of wanted to make sure I could I could cement enough points for Kona and seventy point three worlds early, early on in the season. Um, so I can so I didn't really have to worry too much about chasing points. I could just focus on on the races I wanted to do next year. Yeah. Um, so that it was uh, the Middle Eastern Championships in Bahrain. So uh, yeah, a lot of lot of points up for grabs. And to be honest, I wasn't sure where, where I would be after after Bahrain after after bus, Ironman Bustleton. I um I had my physio with me. I was I, mean, I was getting a lot of lot of body work uh, le- leading into the race after the race, and just I, I think that really helped helped me recover muscles recover faster. Uh, I guess. Just being being really healthy, uh, traveling well, and and just um, yeah, making making sure I was doing doing the stuff I needed to do. So just light exercise, turning over. Uh, the first time I actually did did something reasonably hard was uh, the Friday before the race. Just did a couple race pace openers just to to see where things were at, and and I, I actually I was surprised. I, I felt felt quite good on the bike. Um, hit hit some good power the day before, and um, and and it felt yeah felt 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 reasonably easy um and i yeah i felt i felt comfortable at, at that pace so uh ca- came in a race day the swim swim went yeah with without a hitch really that that was okay uh through transition the guys like michael raylett and stefan justice they really 
<laughs> really? they, they wanted to keep the pressure on. <laughs> Excuse me, but I was like, no, no, it's my job to keep the pressure on. You guys back off. <laughs> um, so I spent about 5Ks kind of working my way to the, the front of that group. And um, and it was really windy, that first section. Um, so I got, got to the front finally and um, found a little tailwind section, managed to managed to break Michael Raylett and get a, get a little bit of a gap. And... and um, I just just worked off that really. Uh, we had a basically reason, like tail crosswind for up to about fifty kilometers. Yep. And I think I got through fifty k's in about an hour-ish. So that was that was quite nice. Wow. Like a big, big highway going down, sand blowing in your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but I mean that, that group wasn't actually losing too much time then. It wasn't until the last probably thirty k's with. Uh, some strong, stronger headwinds that I managed to get get uh, get my gap up to close to five minutes, um, and then started the run. I, I didn't didn't feel too bad, but I no, I felt, I felt okay. Um, and at about twelve kilometers, I could feel the Iron Man kind of kick in. I was like, "Yep, sweet legs feel like I've done Iron Man." And um, yeah, that that last nine kilometers home was was really rough. Uh, Stefan Justice was he was five minutes off the bike and. Um, I think at seven k's he was three and a half minutes back. Uh, at fourteen k's, oh, he must have been two, two just over two minutes back. At uh, with with four k's to go, he was was he a minute forty back. Oh, uh, wow. With three k's to go, he was a minute back. I'm like, oh jeez, <laughs> he's eating time out of me way too fast. And I knew it was, he was actually this was that was his last race. He was retiring. Yeah, yeah. Got to the finish line. So. So I knew he would be giving everything, and uh, three k's to go. Had a, had a minute on him, and I said, you know what? If if I don't start sprinting now, I I could I could regret this in uh, in a couple of k's time. And uh, basically, yeah, gave gave it everything from three k's to go, and um, just just hung on. And I was thankful I didn't blow up. Kind of that that adrenaline of getting to the finish line kept kept me going. And, and you held your pace really because you you beat him by a minute, so you kind of you're obviously just running at the same speed. You know he wasn't gaining on you in that last three k as well, so that kind of your own afterburn has kind of delivered, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, what was it like to? How did you feel about doing the back to back? Um, it's probably not ideal for your health. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I mean, t- to be honest, I I was uh, I mean, I I felt fine at the time, and and even the week afterwards when I got back home, I guess full of adrenaline and uh, not not yeah, I didn't feel tired at all. Um, but it's been it's been a long year, and mm. I I mean, I had to make the conscious decision to back back right off now and and have have a good two to three weeks where. Yeah, where I let the body recover and the mind recover, so that I can, um, yeah, get hopefully start off twenty seventeen where I left off this year. So, so obviously, Nutrigrain Ironman New Zealand's the next goal, uh, and you know it's your home race, so to win it's the goal. But you know, twenty seventeen because you've done so well in this last period of time, it really sets you up really nicely next year to kind of have a different kind of race schedule in regards to getting the points and so on. So, you know, for now, how do you get through to New Zealand and then how do you see next year working towards Kona? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't sat down and uh, and planned the year with, with my coach, but I, I have a rough idea of, of how things are going to flow. Um, yeah, of course, neutral going Ironman New Zealand in, in the beginning of March, that's, that's a big goal of mine. Um, after that, I'd, I'd like to go back up to Girona, yep. and <coughs> excuse me, and then Spain, and, and do another training block with Jan and, and Nick. I, I 
yeah, really enjoyed that. We were good, good bunch of guys, had some good laughs and did a lot of hard work. So that, that was, I think that, that was, uh, that's a really important block. Um, that kind of May, June, July, getting some, getting some really good work in. Uh, and prob- probably a couple races. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't mind trying to get a couple of the 70, big 70.3 races and, and potentially another Ironman ju- during the year. But that'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to sit down with my coach and uh, decide if we do that or not. But um, and then just yeah, that that, that Kona build up. We have a few ideas that that we'd like to try leading into that. That that um, yeah, that you kind of stumble upon over, over the years and uh, yeah, I guess just just change the approach into that slightly and uh, and see if we can come out with a different outcome. So one thing a lot of age group athletes probably struggle with is this whole idea of how do I stick to my own training when I'm training within a group. And so for a pro like yourself, you know, you go you go to Girona and you kind of hang out with you know a couple of pros who are all high level. How do you guys work it? Do you work that you're going to do same sessions because you know you obviously got different needs and different coaches. So how does it work within your group? Well, to be honest, I think at the at the stage I'm at, I, uh, I mean, I, th- I think there's very very little difference between going out and doing uh, five by ten minutes or ten by five minutes. I I think I'm I'm where I am at my career is I'll get more benefit from from being in a group environment with with other guys pushing me, um, and and that's that's what motivates me. So so I when I was up there at the the type of training they were doing fitted in with the type of training I needed to be doing. Uh, my coach John Ackland and I, we were able to say, "Yep, this is, this is that's fine. We'll just we'll just jump in with them." And I'd I'd get their program at the beginning of every week, and I would go I'd go over it with John, and we'd just make sure kind of identify areas that I needed to be careful not not to overdo it, and um, yeah, and and just. Monitor things quite closely to make yeah just to make sure you're not not overtraining or uh or yeah or getting sick so it's um yeah it's a it's it's a tricky one because you you do want to you do want like for for an age group person you do want to listen to your coach but um you also want to be in an environment where you're where you're training with people that you enjoy so it's how do you how do you find that balance between yeah, being in the group and then and doing doing your stuff and I'm actually helping out a friend of mine at the moment and yeah, uh, he keeps going in groups that that slow him down, don't let him do his workout. I'm like, come on, man, you got to you got to get. And I can imagine being a coach would be be pretty frustrating. You'd go, look, I put all this time in writing. Your <laughs> come on, and do it. <laughs> Just listen to me for once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Trust it's a, it's that funny thing, isn't it? Because it's appealing to train with other people, and so it's this kind of. You know, how do we get what we need out of our training, but also get the other aspects of the sport that add value to what we do, isn't it? It's kind of that challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, Ironman, Ironman's pretty individual. You need to get out there on the day and, and stick to your numbers, stick to your race plan. As soon as you start playing someone else's game, that's that's when it's going to cost you and, and probably cost you big time. So, yeah, tr- training needs to be somewhat similar as well, I guess. Yeah, earlier on in the conversation, you kind of said that, you know, I felt I've neglected, I mean, you're probably being a bit hard on yourself here, but the kind of the role of a father and a husband in this last year trying to achieve some pretty big goals. You know, it's a pretty serious, serious thing because, you know, like, how does a pro, who it's your job to bring the income for the family in, uh, how do you manage that well so that you are getting enough to the to the family aspect of your life, but also being able to be the best athlete you can do? <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I guess uh, 
whenever it's playtime, I'm laying on the floor and playing with Cavallo instead of uh, standing up or taking him for a walk. Um, and I uh, just, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. My, my wife has been around basically throughout my whole career and, and she understands what, what it takes. Um, so she's, she's pretty supportive on it. And, and a lot of the time she would say, no, you go recover. I've, I've got Cavallo. You, you, you need to rest. You need to get this workout in tomorrow and you, and, uh, and she'd make sure like good food was on the table and, and, uh, and, and we're also very fortunate. We've both got really supportive parents, um, mm-hmm. who help us out a lot and, and just cause she, my wife's actually got a, got her own company. So she, she works a lot as well. So, um, just, yeah, try, trying to, trying to find that, that happy balance. But I think communication is probably a really big thing for, for anyone. Just, uh, I mean, a tri- triathlon is a hard sport and, and a lot of the time you're tired, but if you can communicate with your family, with, with, uh, with those people that, that matter to you and, and let them know that, that this isn't going to be uh, a lifelong, <laughs> a life lo- you're not going to be grumpy for the rest of your life. It'll just, uh, it's just until March. <laughs> it's just until March and then I'll be a lot nicer. <laughs> How do you separate yourself from the sport? You know, because it's, you know, your, your name, you're, you know, in New Zealand, Jeepers Creepers, you are one of the, the names of triathlon and you've been, you know, household name for a long, long time. But like, do you have interests, just things that are about, you know, you getting away from the sport? Oh, yeah. My um, my family definitely makes sure when I'm home, they, they don't treat me like a professional athlete or uh, a big deal at all. I'm I'm bossed around, told to told to do the gardening and the cleaning and... Uh, <laughs> you know your space. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I we're, we're actually over on Waiheke at the moment with Kelly's family, and oh, it's just great over here. Just uh, it's diff- different world. Go out on the boat fishing and um, down at the beach playing playing with my son, which is which is unreal. Um, and I guess moments when when you do play with with your son. Uh, I mean, Cavallo's seventeen months old, and and the whole world just freezes eh? nothing nothing else around you matters it's it's you in that moment and uh and that's it and i'm yeah i'm i'm pretty lucky to have uh, have a family like that i do that family that i do have and i'm uh i i'm yeah really blessed that they they support me and and allow me to to do the things i want to do so so just going back to that the kind of experienced athlete thing, you know, you, you were first world champion at 15, you're 31 now, so you have been playing the game for a long time. Do you, do you feel there are any, you know, if we look at athletic age, do you feel there are there are any things that are limiting you or do you actually still see like, you know, like we, we look at like the Crowies and other, it was late 30s and they were still peaking really long. Do you think because you've been at the game sh- longer, even though you're still quite young, there's a shorter period at the other side, or do you still think you know a good six, seven years of great racing in front of you? <laughs> well, I, I guess I I used to think that, yeah, because I started so young, my um my maturity and strength that 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 you would expect to see in <clears throat> in your early to mid thirties would, would happen earlier, but that never happened. So I'm I'm expecting to see it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, results, recent results, kind of argue you're right. Yeah, yeah, but I uh, I. I mean, I, I I feel I feel good, and I'll keep doing the sport as as long as I'm enjoying it, and as long as my body will will allow me to. Um, six seven years, yeah, that that could potentially not not be a problem at all. Um, I'll uh, I, yeah, I guess try, try and win in, in on the Big Island and uh, and go from there. I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we want to see you in there, mate, because you're a bloody Kiwi and we love you. Hey, yeah, um, thank mate. you so much for your time. Uh, what do you do Christmas Day? Do you, do you, what's, what's Christmas Day for the family? Um, uh, Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning over in Auckland with my family and then, um, yeah, jump over to Waiheke during during the day on Christmas and uh, spend a bit of time with Kel's family. So, oh, nice. Yeah, well, lots, of, lots of Christmases for us. Yeah, it's probably, <laughs> as you get older, the families get bigger, don't they? So, yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. If you want to follow Terenzo uh, Facebook, Twitter, I'll put a link to that all in the show notes. Uh, and good luck for Ironman New Zealand and obviously 2017 moving forward. We, we just want to see you kick butt and you know really dominate in Kona as well. So good work, mate. Thanks, Bev. Appreciate that. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and all the listeners. Have a great one. Thanks, mate. For us Kiwis, I've got to say, I'm over the moon that Terenzo seemed to have just kind of found this next step in this last moment in time. We've always known he's had a pedigree to be able to achieve this kind of result. And and to be honest, in, in 7.3s, this guy has nailed, you know, he's been a world champ. So he's achieved so much at that level. But the Ironman's always kind of been that bugbearer for him. And I kind of just hope that this has been that belief moment for him that opens him up to a higher level moving into 2017. And, and who knows, I'd love to see him podium or if not do better in Kona. It's been so long since Ken Brown's been up there. And we, and we don't really have that female athlete in New Zealand right now. So just me being a biased Kiwi, I've got to say, good work, Trenzo. Good luck for 2017. Okay, sponsor. I'm going to talk about uh, xendurance.com. Xendurance is, it's, you know, we used to always talk about extreme endurance, but nowadays they've got lots of different products. And they're kind of, it's all about improving your performance. So their product line is all about how do we improve athletic performance. So they've got different products they've got. Extreme Endurance, which is your lactic buffer. They've got Fuel 5, which is basically an energy drink that releases energy wisely throughout your training session. They've got creatine, they've got protein, they've got your Omegas, Hydro X, they've got the Immune Boost, you know, Joint 4. So they really are trying to cover all the areas where, you know, supplementation can improve our athletic performance. So if you haven't ever checked them out, go to xendurance.com. And one thing that's really cool is you can do things like you can get a bundle package. So you may want to decide, I want to try a bit of everything and see what it's like. And you go to there and you can click on the Triumph package and it gives you a bit of everything. And you may, you know, through trialing, realize that extreme endurance is the thing you want or you want like the creatine and so on and so on. So it's just an opportunity for you to be able to kind of trial all the different products. We get lots of good feedback about these guys. And, you know, admittedly, I don't use a lot of it nowadays because I'm not really pushing the athletic kind of level nowadays. But John lives on this stuff. And he really, you know, John's not the kind of person who's going to sell a product that he doesn't believe in. Like, we wouldn't. Neither John and I would. We, we, we've got to believe in the products. And we get we, we get lots of offers for advertising on this show. And we've turned down a lot of things over the years because we're like, does this really fit and do we really believe in this product? And I know when we took on X Endurance, there was a bit of controversy about this, but we took it on because John had tried it and he believed in it and he's a big advocate of it. So, you know, this is quite genuine and our praise of what they do at X Endurance. So if you are looking for that little bit of an edge in your athletic performance, check out xendurance.com and you can get a little bit of a discount there too if you go to use our discount code, which admittedly I don't know it off by heart, but if you go to imtalk.me, uh, they will be on there. Anyway, xendurance.com. Okay, guys, next up I have my interview with Anders Ericsson. Anders Ericsson, Dr. Anders Ericsson, is a phenomenal thinker on human expertise. And I know that after listening to this interview and reading his book, Peak, I just 
you know, I, I think in the last show I talked about how this year I found a higher level of focus. And using some of the tools that Dr. Anders Ericsson talks about, it really, really, um, yeah, really made a difference. So enjoy this interview. Okay, team. I'm very, very excited. I've, you know, on the show over the years, we've had some some very impressive guests, and uh, the one we have on today's show is someone I hold to the high hold to the highest regard, and this is Anders Ericsson, who's the publisher of the book Peak, but is has a long history of studying what creates peak performance, and has been a pretty big influence um, among many big thinkers in the world. So, first of all, welcome along to the show, Anders. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So, so I always love to kind of learn a bit of the history of the person before we kind of go into their body of work. So maybe tell me a little bit about yourself and what, where you started off on your journey of discovering, you know, your body of work. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I can go back, uh, 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 you know, as far back as my childhood. And I, I think I've always been very intrigued by trying to understand my own thinking and, and in particular trying to understand people who seem to be able to do things that I couldn't do. Uh, and I think that has kind of been the, the red thread here through out, you know, when I got to the university, I uh, started studying thinking by having a participant think out loud while they were solving problems. Uh, as a way here of understanding, you know, how different people think and also how similar people think when they're confronted similar situations. When, 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 when you first started, when did you start studying? Well, uh, basically, I think uh, when I was uh, just in the last uh, class of high school, I started reading about psychology and then I went to the university and I was first going to be a nuclear physicist and then I actually was a double student for a couple of years uh, so I actually more as a sort of a hobby was taking courses in psychology but then I really found that psychology offered me a much better chance here to kind of study thinking and, and so then I switched over full time uh, and got a PhD in psychology. And at that time, you know, how much, you know, because psychology as a science or as a, as a kind of academic kind of field, it's quite a new academic field in comparison to others. At that time, how much energy was going into the field of kind of human peak performance? Well, you know, not very much. And 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 I guess that was sort of interesting to me. Uh, most of the uh, researchers in the department they were doing psychophysics, so you, they were listening to tones and they had people rate them and, and basically really looking from the bottom up. So when I came, <clears throat> I, I really was the first person to really start collecting thinking aloud protocols and, and basically trying to get at thinking. And, and a lot of people thought, you know, that that was too soft. You know, there wasn't really science. Really? And and I, and I think the fact that I had more math background, you know, because of my background in nuclear physics, it was sort of like they felt, well, you know, this guy can do the mathematical work that I'm doing, so it's kind of okay for him to explore other methods, whereas a lot of other students who didn't, weren't really strong in mathematics, you know, they, it was sort of like 
they just couldn't do the stuff that they were doing and therefore weren't encouraged to explore other types of methods. And so did you feel resistance? Well, <clears throat> and, and, and maybe in some ways, you know, the, the need here to really prove myself, you know, to really try to be convincing and find evidence that would really demonstrate, and that's really what my dissertation was all about, was using thinking aloud protocols and then showing that this actually allowed us to explain more hard data like latencies between different moves in a game that I was studying and being able to kind of describe why some uh, of the subjects were much better at learning the game than others. So I think that was kind of probably a pretty fortunate for me <clears throat> that I was kind of challenged by these other people to really prove here that what I found that the subjects were telling me in terms of what they were thinking about really reflected uh, the performance that could be observed. Do you remember early on any kind of real key breakthrough moments for you where A, your belief in where you were going was the right path and, and B, you got credibility? Well, I, I kind of do remember one American psychologist who uh, visited the department and gave a talk, and, and I got a chance to talk to him for an hour. And when he heard about the fact that I basically was doing this commuting between the Royal Institute of Technology and psychology and the kind of work I was doing, you know, he, he really kind of told me, you know, this is really impressive. And, wow. and I think, you know, that was... You know, one of those little <clears throat> signs of, 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 of uh, confidence that, you know, just sort of made your self-confidence grow quite a bit. So, so, you know, in the scientific field, you often are, or, you know, in the research field, you are trying to find, you kind of are trying to find, discover things, aren't you? But you often, I imagine, go into it with an idea of what you think you're going <clears> to find. So early on, when you're in this kind of process of discovering a, pro, you know, that process of, communicating my thoughts as I'm thinking. Um, what, what were you thinking you were going to discover? Well, you know, I, I think it was more this search to try to understand because uh, there were several researchers in the United States that had started to ask the question, you know, how can we actually get a computer to behave as a human person? And, uh, and that led to a lot of questions here about you know, what is it that allows people to solve problems? And what is it that we need to tell computers to be able to do that? Hmm. Now, my feeling was, and, and I guess that was kind of my angle on it, that the computer models didn't really capture the the range of of, of sort of adaptability and change that humans had. And, and, and I think that was kind of the starting point when I was invited to come to the United States to be a postdoc. I was really interested in, you know, to what extent, you know, a computer, <clears throat> the memory structure can't be really changed. You can just change the content of the memory in the computer. Mm. But so, so there was this belief that humans had a very limited short-term memory that was kind of hardwired and really couldn't be changed. So that was kind of the first major question that I started addressing with, with a senior professor 
uh, at Carnegie Mellon University. So we actually wanted to see, can you actually expand the amount of information that you can hold on to in your short-term memory with training? So that was kind of the first <clears throat> question. And, and people can do about seven digits. What we showed, and especially we were able to collect thinking loud protocols of how this process changed as this college student improved the number of digits that he could report back in order from about seven. And towards the end, he was able to do strings of 80 random digits. Wow. But it really showed that the rural reports really helped us understand what it is that really was changing as a function of training. And I think that may, in fact, be the most kind of important insight that I've ever had because it really allowed us then to start asking, you know, what is it that other experts in other fields are doing? And can we describe that with the same kind of methods and does it evolve in a similar way as a result of training such that you're actually building up new mental structures that explain why some people are able to perform at a much higher level than others? Mm. You know, in your book, you talk about this, <clears throat> this student who you took from taking from, you know, seven words up to 80. Um, and, and you kind of talk a lot about their process and how they learnt these models and they create these models as they went along. But also, I imagine you're a part of the experience because you're trying to learn how to get the best out of them at the same time. Well, you know, he was extremely motivated. And, and I guess we were really more passively trying to observe as he was kind of trying out different things. And I guess the key was, instead of just rehearsing the numbers he actually broke them into little groups and then formed connections here with knowledge about numbers. He was a long-distance runner, so he could look at you know, a three-digit number as a time for a particular race and kind of form meaning out uh, between those uh, numbers. And that allowed him now to store this in long-term memory. And as he got better, he could store up to about 20 different chunks like that in long-term memory and then when he was supposed to recall at the end he would then go back to his long-term memory and pull them out one by one so he could then reproduce the exact uh, sequence mm-hmm. and, and so at that time you kind of made some discoveries around what he was doing to make him successful what were those key takeaways from that for you well you know we we basically argued that the most important thing was making finding connections with long-term memory knowledge they already had about running times uh, sometimes you know dates like you know 1942 uh, ages of people was another mnemonic that he used the second principle was what we call retrieval structure it was sort of like he was encoding these meaningfully and then he was placing them within a spatial scheme that he developed. And over time, <clears throat> he could actually have about 20 of these different locations in his mind where he could actually form associations uh, with the uh, digit groups that he had encoded. So, so at what point did you, did you kind of, you know, you, you, one of the big things you promote is this kind of idea of deliberate practice. So you're saying those are the models. Where did the deliberate practice part start to come out for you? 
Well, and, and that was actually an insight that, you know, I made even after how close this particular training that we engaged in, because we always kept the student at his limit. So if he was able to do nine digits, we would start presenting him with nine digits. When he got nine digits, we would increase it to 10. So we constantly kept him at a length where he was failing 50% of the time. Mm. And, and I think, you know, that being able to repeat, try out different things, and then actually keep working, I think that incorporates a lot of what we later <clears throat> called deliberate practice, where, where you actually get immediate feedback on what you're doing, and then you can repeat it until you basically mastered it and increased uh, your performance. So, so, so at the time, you made these insights about him making connection to long-term memory and his re retrieval structure and stuff. And then after the fact, you kind of reflected upon how you got him there, and that made you realize that, that kind of stretching of him was one of the keys to actually helping him progress and keeping on on his edge was actually one of the things that came to the point where we could get up to 80 words at a time. Right. And, and I think that is one of the intriguing things about deliberate practice. So if you're only successful 50% of the time, that's to a lot of people really frustrating. Mm. But what we would argue, that's where you want to be. That's a sweet spot where you're basically able not to stretch yourself and actually go a little bit further. And if you were adjusting now the difficulty level such that you always are at 50%, I think that's the ideal spot for somebody who wants to improve. But a lot of people would find that that's takes too much work, you know, stretching yourself. And, and what we find is the key is actually finding enough time when you can sustain that concentration. So instead of trying to do hours and hours, you may be better off having 30 minutes of that intense concentration because that really allows you now to increase your performance beyond what you could do uh, previously. You, you, you talk about this a lot, don't you? You talk about this whole idea of that deliberate practice is hard. You know, it's it's not, it's not like a lot of people who um, become masters, they don't think about their practice time as an enjoyable time. It's not something that they're necessarily even that fond of, but they enjoy the rewards of it, obviously, but the actual process of deliberate practice is, is kind of meant to be hard, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think... It, it's maybe even clearer when you go to some of the physical things. Mm. So, for example, if you want to increase the amount of weight that you can lift uh, when you're doing weightlifting, if you basically do things that don't really require much effort, uh, I bet you you're not going to improve very much. Yeah. What seems to be key to improving is to be at that limit where you're actually pushing yourself. But it's also clear that you need a lot of rest and recuperation. And it seems that when you're pushing yourself beyond your limits, you're activating genes that then during the rest period is actually starting to modify the physiology of your muscles or your body. And, and so, so that kind of links up now that there isn't really any shortcuts or ways in which you can find these magical insights that transform you you're actually going to have to transform your body and brain, and, and that's what you do during deliberate practice. 
So, so if we were to define deliberate practice, uh, you know, is there a kind of a, a def- definition that you kind of use to define what deliberate practice is? Yeah. Now, now we kind of distinguish regular practice. You know, when somebody goes out and plays golf, you know, goes through the court or plays a tennis game or whatever, you know, that's just you're just doing. Uh, we also distinguish purposeful practice where you're actually picking out some aspect of the game that you really want to change. And and in order to do that effectively, you have to almost have your own training environment. Uh, one example that I would, you know, often uh, uh, use is when you're playing tennis, doubles tennis, and you miss a backhand volley, say, well, the game is just going to go on. It's not like you have a chance here of improving your backhand volley during regular doubles play. Mm. Imagine that you actually now have a coach who basically have dedicated time. He can allow you to get ready for the volley and make corrections here so you actually are doing the right kind of strokes, then make it increasingly more difficult by forcing you to run up to the net and do the volley, and then eventually embed this in rallying so you can now incorporate these improvements in your backhand volley in your uh, overall game. Hmm. So, so that provides you now maybe in just one hour as many opportunities as you would accumulate over months or years, and and I would uh, argue that the benefits of that one hour is going to be more than years of just playing regular doubles play. Hmm. Hmm. And so. With with that, what we are looking for is, so is, is there a process, like, you know, so you're saying that regular practices you're just doing, hoping to get better, but actually you're not really concentrating on the key areas that are going to help me progress forward. And if I'm going to do that kind of thinking, uh, it's reflective, it's focused on those areas, and then you're going to actually do the work to improve that area. Exactly. And, and I think that idea here that you have to focus your practice because that's when you're going to be able to maximize now doing the same thing over and refining it. Uh, so in regular environments, situations are so different from each other that you don't really get that control. So you can actually now improve the way uh, you're you know, hitting your backhand volley or you're doing your putts or, or whatever. And, and I guess we talk about deliberate practice as being a purposeful practice, which is guided by a teacher. So if you actually have a teacher that have taught other individuals to go from your current level to where you want to be, then basically you have some assurance here that the teacher can actually tell you about what is the effective practice that will help you get to where you want to go. Mm. And, and very often when, people train by themselves, you know, they have ideas about what they need to do. So if you want to, you know, improve your dunking in basketball, you know, you may jump up against the hoop, you know, try to jump higher and higher. As it turns out, that's not the most effective way of increasing your jumping height. If you want to increase your jumping height, more effective is weight training, where you can actually train your legs by pushing up a weight, you know, very rapidly, Hmm. that kind of training that your legs are getting during weight training will actually allow you to increase your jumping height more. 
and, and, and that's where a teacher could teach you that kind of information. So that kind of external feedback to actually help you figure out what needs to be worked on and the best method to help you get there. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and if you run into problems, then the teacher will be able to pinpoint what is it that you're not doing right, or maybe you need to train something additional here to be able to, you know, achieve the goal that uh, the teacher and you agreed on. It's interesting, Anders, because I, um, one thing I don't lack as a person is I don't lack discipline. So, you know, like, for example, I wanted to play the piano and, and the next day I was practicing an hour a day every day of my life. Like, I, I'm not the guy who needs to develop willpower to do something. I've just kind of had that within me. But I've been playing piano for about five or six years now. And, and I realized after kind of studying your work and, and uh, I realized that while I didn't lack the discipline to do the work, my technique to get better was very poor. And for that reason, I'm probably not as good a pianist as what I could have been if I had a different approach. And it's been really interesting over the last period of time, I've been really trying to practice this kind of deliberate practice model, and that includes using a, a teacher, but also includes a lot of recording, identifying the hard moment and just practicing on the hard moment, doing that kind of that hard concentrated effort. And it's amazing how much progress I've made in, in you know a very short period of time in comparison to the period of time I put into that because I didn't really have a very good practice strategy. Well, you know, I, this makes me so happy to hear that this was useful to you because that I've heard a lot of people, you know, b basically uh, finding that confronting the difficulty mm. uh, and, and basically working on the hardest part when you have the most focus and energy as opposed to, you know, trying to do them towards the end uh, – and you're just setting yourself up for failure. So mm. by basically, you know, having the teacher to kind of give you assurance here that, you know, if you're willing to do these things, you're going to gradually be able to reach that level that you're aspiring to. You know, that I think is, is something that I know that people really have found very helpful because some people, you know, when they're doing it by themselves, you know, sometimes they wonder if they really are capable of doing it yeah. but having a teacher who've seen other people going through that same stages and now i'm encouraging people to record videos so that would allow other people now to kind of see you know that person was doing this and now three months later they're actually able to do this vastly superior uh, uh realization here of whatever it is and I think that the really dangerous aspect of it is that, you know, like I think of my time when I was first playing piano where I just kind of had a discipline but not a very good technique to practice is that I was starting to build in this within myself because I never really nailed anything that perfectly. Um, this idea that I would never be a great musician. And so I was identifying that the limits around my ability, not necessarily looking at my technique of how to get better. And so I started to self-identify in a way that was actually a limiting factor in me moving forward and, and probably limited my confidence in this area. Whereas when I shifted the way I practiced, then I just saw things as problems that needed to be solved and what was the approach to solve it and realized that I could get better. And that was quite a, a shift for me. Well, I think that's wonderful. One point that I want to make, uh, which is sort of related, and that is this idea here, and I often use the analogy of a mountain. You know, so when people actually started to try climb mountains, 
it was sort of that one person was trying, you know, to get up there and then they ran into something that they couldn't really deal with. And they, they come back and share that information and then somebody else now actually can draw on that knowledge and hopefully get a little bit further. Mm. And I think in many domains, you know, there is that accumulated wisdom, especially among professional teachers, about what need what you need to be able to do, especially to get to those highest levels, because there, I think, is where the technique is going to be the most limiting factor. And if you've acquired basically something that is not completely right, you're going to basically be penalized when you're trying to do it. Uh, so, for example, in ballet, if if you don't have the right kind of posture and then you're increasing more difficult sort of movements, you're not going to have that balance that is going to make you able to progress. Mm. So if you kind of started out doing something incorrectly, you may actually need to invest in acquiring the fundamentals that would then provide you with the stepping stones uh, to go further. Hmm. Well, one thing you talk a lot about in the book is, is you know, this kind of idea of deliberate practice, you know, and, and getting the people and identifying the thing and doing the hard work. But you say one of the the real rewards or the of the benefits of this deliberate practice is kind of the mental models that people build. And that when we look at these high level people and in kind of any area, they just have these high level mental models that have been developed because of the deliberate practice they've done. Can you can maybe share a bit more insight on that? Well, you know, and I think that is uh, maybe one of the most exciting parts because it's kind of hard almost to kind of understand why sort of a chess player can kind of see or, or generate, you know, extremely successful moves that a lesser player, you know, in some ways are surprised by because they didn't even consider them. So... I guess I would argue, uh, and if we take music as an example, that control that you as a musician can generate by being able to think of a sound and then actually having a representation that tries to translate that sound into something that you can produce on your instrument. If you can then listen to the sound that's being produced, you can match it up now with your intention. Mm-hmm. And by cycling through you're actually able to create something that you generated mentally Mm. and i think that provides a lot of people tremendous satisfaction you know that ability of sort of cognitively plan and construct ideas that you can then actually give life to and if you're a writer you know you can express your ideas and communicate your experiences But all of these kind of activities, you know, require technique that allows you now to basically go from your mental way of representing things so you can actually produce something that you can share with other people. Mm. And and, and we basically find the same thing in sports where the best players, they can actually, they go around scanning the environment so way past what they can see at the moment to build a mental model of where the different players are and where they're going because there's this momentum. So if you're starting in one direction, you're not going to totally turn around. And that actually allows them, once they get the ball, 
they can now pass the ball to a player that really has much better chances here of doing something than less skilled players who can't keep track of what all the different players are and sort of uncover now opportunities for their uh, teammates. I saw a very good example of this. Um, they did a documentary on Ronaldo, the soccer player, and um, and as a part of the, kind of based on his level of skill. And one of the, the things they did in his documentary was they got him to take a free kick from the corner. And at first, they he had to basically get it to the, so where this guy was standing. And at first, they did it in in a way where. Um, you know, he, the lights were on. The second time they did it, they the guy was running in and then they turned the lights off just before he kicked the ball. But then the third time they did it, they turned the lights off before he'd even kicked the ball and he still hit the mark on the spot. And they were just kind of saying that was one of the things that he had. He could read the play so far ahead and he could just watch people's trajectory and then place the ball in that spot kind of so much faster than anybody else, was, which, which was obviously his advantage as a player. Oh, that, that's, that's a wonderful example. Uh, uh, actually, I might even ask you here if you could yeah, uh, you give the me the source. Yeah. Uh, because we, we know from other uh, activities, like, for example, tennis, uh, where you can play it indoors, that you can turn out the light, and, and that very good tennis players seem to be able to you know, with with much less uh, information, being able to, you know, kind of handle balls, uh, but but in in general, that that's true for all the domain that that I know, that a skilled player can actually, and often after you've completed a match, sort of replay a particular sequence of a game, and now sort of analyze it and ask questions. You know, so if the outcome wasn't what you predicted. You know, what was it that you weren't paying attention to? And and often then by going to videos, you will actually be able now to kind of see, was there something that you missed? Was one player running much faster than you had expected and, and thereby uh, was able to intercept the ball when you were passing it? Mm. So, so basically that kind of, being able to expect things. And I've been talking to surgeons who often spend, you know, an hour before surgery looking at all the brain scans or, or other scans that are relevant to the surgery they're doing. So they can kind of, in their head, go through the surgery and sort of anticipate potential issues and problems. So then they can kind of sort out or prepare for different issues that might come up even before they're actually into the surgery. And that seems to be one of the things that master surgeons have told me is the thing that sets apart junior surgeons uh, from more senior uh, uh, expert surgeons. And so what we're saying is that if I do the work with deliberate practice in the right way, that's the kind of world I'm going to develop within my mind in those areas. And, you know, that, and the benefit is obviously this kind of much level higher insight or, or a capability to be able to see things beforehand and make much better decisions around, at those times. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, if you embed this so you can actually now relate what you are able to do better to talking to the patient and, and in some ways see that you actually made a difference here in somebody's life mm. by being able to do things that maybe other people might not have been able to do as successfully. 
And yeah. I think the same thing in music. I mean, if you can do something that you can actually see here that the audience is being moved by and now relate that to something that you made yourself being able to do, you know, that generates kind of a feedback loop that I think is providing a lot of people with extreme enjoyment and, and also reinforcing here kind of this idea that you want to stretch yourself and you want to do new things and go a little bit further and improve your outcomes with cancer surgeries a little bit, you know, and, and basically that becomes now a very exciting path that, you know, in some ways provides you with one important source of meaning in your life. And I imagine that becomes a bit of a loop of motivation, doesn't it? Because I'm I'm getting this higher level reward for the higher level effort and the rewards I'm creating for others or the experience I create to the world. So I'm more motivated to kind of do more deliberate practice, if you know what I mean. Exactly. And, you know, and I think when we talk about that people don't like to do deliberate practice, what I find is that successful people, they almost schedule time when they're going to, you know, be doing their practice. Mm. So they don't really have to get into the issue that a lot of amateurs do. You know, am I going to do it now or should I do it tomorrow? Mm. No, they built up basically a routine where they, you know, by default, basically start practicing. And then they're focusing in on the goals. You know, they're not asking yourself, do I want to do this? They're basically focusing in on how can I basically reach this goal? And then when you do reach that goal, then you can, you know, take a pause and in some ways, uh, you know, enjoy that achievement that you did. But but if you were to interrupt people and basically ask them to, you know, make judgments about how they feel, then I think you would find, you know, that this is not the most relaxing and enjoyable activity that yeah. they could imagine. Yeah. Uh, but but it's really, you know, and I, and I think people who go out exercising you know, have a little bit of that sense that when you push yourself, especially if you feel maybe a little tired, you know, that's not a thing that if that was all there was, but once you actually get to the end and you really feel here that, you know, you're now relaxed, you basically feel very good here about what you were able to do during the, 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 the training, you know, that's the moments that I guess I would, feel that the really successful individuals that's what they focus in on mm, they understand the reward of the hard work and that becomes the motivator in a way right so it's sort of like you try to minimize these conflict situations by designing your life and thereby it makes it easier now to kind of be focused here on what it is that you want to achieve and and then sometimes you know i think Allowing yourself some time to, if you're a musician, you know, just explore different new things. You know, that I think a lot of musicians find very enjoyable. And in the process, you may actually discover something that you say, hmm, you know, I want to basically incorporate that in something uh, that you were planning to perform. And then, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a, a harvesting here of ideas and feelings and experiences. Mm. Well, another thing you, you, you talk about a lot is this whole idea of that we're not chasing knowledge, we're chasing skills. Maybe give us a little bit on that. Right. And, and I think our educational system, unfortunately, is 
focus so much on, on knowledge because it's so easy to test whether somebody has it or not. Mm. But in all the professional domains, I think they've all recognized that knowledge by itself doesn't help you. So if you see a patient, what you need is sort of methods and techniques that allow you now to kind of have access to your knowledge as it's relevant to symptoms and problems uh, that you discover. So if you build up a representation here where you collect information about various symptoms and then you generate various hypotheses and ideas about what it is, you need to kind of have reorganized your knowledge to fit that diagnostic activity. So what many medical schools now do is that they, instead of teaching it, you know, as kind of physiology of the heart or whatever, uh, you're basically framing it now in terms of medical practice where you would encounter certain types of patients and having to make now diagnostic differences here between different types of problems that patients might have and what kind of tests you would need to do in order to eventually being able to diagnose and then treat uh, the problem that they have. Mm-hmm. So, so when we think about our own self-development, it is to really focus on what's the skill I want to be improving? Exactly. What is it that you want to do? And I think that, you know, if there's one thing in my research, it's that focus in on trying to clearly define what is it that you actually want to do. Mm. So if, if you as a medical doctor, you know, want to basically uh, diagnose various kinds of patients, that can now be defined here by, you know, a large number of potential patients. And the question is, are you able now by taking out, eliciting that information from those patients such that you would be able to identify basically the problem that they have? And, and, or, you know, if you're a surgeon, then basically uh, your issues might be different. You know, mm. you would want to basically interview the patient and make sure here that this surgery with all the benefits and potential risks is really worthwhile for this individual and that it's very likely here that, you know, investing and, 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 and doing this uh, is really going to be a benefit to the patient. One, one thing I love, um, well, one thing I'm interested in is, you know, a lot of the work we talk about or you talk about is this kind of practical application. So it might be being a musician, it might be, you know, um, being a surgeon and stuff like that. And and I may, and there is also, you know, even internal, so like being a mathematician and it's how to problem solve those things. But I wonder if you've done much research on people trying to change personal behavior traits that they struggle with. So we might say um, bad eating habits or, um, you know, negative self-talk and stuff like that. Have you ever done much research into using deliberate practice to overcome a lot of self-problems and self-behavior that actually works against people in life that if they were to liberate themselves in that area would actually be quite powerful. Have you you ever done much research on that? Uh, You know, basically, uh, uh, I haven't personally uh, done uh, much research. What I have been uh, doing is to interact a fair bit with uh, psychotherapists who would have patients, you know, that they would be working with. And, And I guess in some sense... Uh, the issues are, what is it that makes one therapist more successful here in actually helping their patients uh, mm-hmm. than another therapist? And, and basically, so that 
would be sort of an indirect uh, kind of answer to your question. And, and one of the things that seems to be key, you know, is establishing kind of that personal connection. Uh, and, and, and basically, people have, uh, there are researchers who have interviewed uh, psychotherapists who have outcomes that are better than their colleagues in the same uh, kind of therapeutic uh, center and, and basically tried to look at it. And, and it's a little bit like surgery. You know, these successful therapists spend more time preparing for seeing the patient, you know, a little bit like the surgeon thinking through here, what is it that I need to do? And then uh, I guess working with the patient and trying to find out now how can we actually help that patient, you know, uh, prepare for difficult situations and maybe also make them focused here on the benefits of the changes that they're trying to do. But, but to be honest here, you know, this is something that is more uh, like I've been talking to the teachers of psych uh, psychotherapists, you know, talking about how you would be able to develop uh, psychotherapists that have better outcomes with the patients. Because, because I, I just because uh, through you kind of your work and stuff like that, and I do a little bit of mentoring work for some people, and and I was doing some mentoring with a guy who drinks too much. Um, he, he's not an, an alcoholic or anything like that, but he, when he drinks, he always drinks to the point where he kind of gets slightly disappointed in himself. And and one of his goal was to be a drinker who could enjoy drinking and know when to stop. Um, that was his goal, and and so we really kind of we took this approach of what's your skill with drinking, like what are the what are the skills we need to think about in improving um, your ability to be able to stop or or not go to that point where you wake up the next day disappointed in the level you went to, and we kind of really identified a few key moments, like he needed to when he went out socially start drinking a little bit later, practice drinking one beer on, one beer off, communicating with his friends, his intentions with his drinking, and all of these types of things. And we basically identified, well, where are the, we kind of looked at his skills, and we said, well, where are the skills that are making you drink too much? What's happening there? And, and what do we need to change? And then we said to him, okay, well, over the next period of time, we want you to practice those kind of outcomes or, or the behaviors are going to help you have better outcomes and it was really interesting he was able to shift by having that approach and it was really fascinating to see actually to look at a behavior and could we treat it as a skill and shift the desired outcome based on looking at the behaviors i i think that's that's really fantastic and and i think you know uh i'm hoping here that maybe get a talking a little bit about or or kind of looking at that research that is focused now on helping people, you know, with issues that have to do with the planning of, of their days. And, and I know that from some research on, on basically, uh, uh, you know, various kinds of medical problems that are virtually permanent where you, you know, you're a diabetic. So you actually have to change your entire uh, uh, kind of structure of your life mm. and, and, and there are ways in which you can avoid now various kinds of problems. And I think there are some interesting similarities between, you know, the expert who is now designing their life in a way to kind of support their ability now to be focused and, and try to develop their own performance. Mm. And when we interviewed musicians, what I found interesting was that the expert musicians very deliberately picked friends so they avoided certain types of 
of friends because they knew that these friends would have these other social behaviors. So they would feel, you know, almost bad that you would elect now to go home early from a party because you really wanted to have that good energy in the morning to be able to work on your craft. Mm. So, so by dating people who had an equal commitment to some kind of uh, skill trajectory, uh, you basically avoided that kind of uh, maybe destructive discussion here mm. about somebody who has, you know, five times more leisure time than, than you feel like you would want to have as part of your uh, uh, weekly uh, schedule. Mm. And, and I think there are other things uh, they were talking about was actually thinking about individuals that they would be able to go to for emotional support or other kinds of things. So they really kind of arranged their life in a way that I think is much more disciplined than I think the average person of, of actually making sure here that they were doing things and reciprocating. So they actually had, you know, uh, an environment that was truly supportive of their efforts uh, to, to reach their highest level. Yeah, so their environment actually made it easier for them to continue down the path they wanted to go to, didn't work against them, and they were quite conscious in how they chose to do that. Exactly. And I think, you know, some of these problems, social problems that some people have, you know, if somebody might be able to help them figure out here how they might be able to redesign, you know, some of their interactions, that may actually make it a lot easier for them, uh, you know, to make adjustments in their uh, habitual behavior. Mm, yeah, totally. Because a lot of our behaviors are just poorly learned behavior practices and all poorly, poorly learned strategies that we've just sat in for a long time and we haven't actually thought about well if I were to change this behavior what would be the way to do it and then then to look at it as a practice thing because a lot again as we go back to earlier it's that I identify that I'm just this is the way I am and which doesn't lead me to change whereas when I look at it as a skill maybe obviously there's different levels but maybe I can change these things and how would I go about doing it no I, I think that that's a great uh, idea and suggestion and and Maybe somebody listening here, uh, you know, would get excited about that. And I think that has some real potential. When it, when it comes to motivation, you know, because I imagine a lot of people, because, you know, you, I love you, your work and I just think your insight's brilliant. And, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are very attractive to the conversation. Um, but this is, you often get the person who listens to this go, but yeah, I haven't found my thing. Or, you know, where do I start? Um, you know, like it's easy for people who already have this or have found that they love music. What, how do you find people find the initial motivation? I, that's a great question. And, and I guess uh, what, what Robert Poole, my co-author on the book, and I, you know, we were kind of talking about that it's really kind of productive to have a society where people are supposed to find their gifts mm. uh, because we don't really think that there is much evidence here that anybody kind of just discovered that they're able to do something that they didn't know about and that there is a little bit of at least here in the united states a culture here of going out and sniffing at things to see whether you know that's the right thing and most college students that that i talk to you know they've been around sniffing and they don't find anything so it's kind of been a very uh kind of non-productive process so looking at my life i think i've always had one thing that I was really interested in, that maybe that 
you know, something happened and I got interested in something else, but it was more, you know, this idea here of assuming a direction and, and maybe as a parent, you would be able to kind of support your kids to at least pick one activity, you know, what they actually pick. Um, and, and sometimes it's useful to pick something that you're interested in because it provides now the opportunity for parent and child to bond doing this activity that you enjoy, which in turn uh, makes it likely here that you can get your child to enjoy it. Mm. But essentially this thing here of providing ideally every child with this experience of how much they can change if they're willing now to invest in this kind of directed training, I think you know will actually be very beneficial as they get older and now they can redirect all that knowledge they that they have about change uh, towards some professional activity that they are interested in. But essentially, even in college, you know, you have a path. And I, I guess pretty early on, I, I wanted to be a researcher uh, in nuclear physics, which when I was in high school seemed to be the most exciting place. But basically, then it switched over to studying psychology and thinking. And, and I guess that's where I've been sort of roaming around now for the last uh, uh, 50 years. So, uh, and, and, and I think that having, giving people that sort of opportunity of having something that they can, you know, feel like they can actually understand and contribute to really provides them with all sorts of opportunities for interacting with other people, for producing, you know, successful things that will make life a little bit better for some person. Mm. Uh, Do you feel that that's just real important? Yeah, and it, well, I just think, you know, for those people who are in that place, it is important that you devote the time. Because I think the, one of the things I love about your work, and you, you know, you're a big advocate that there is no real such thing as the natural born genius or the natural born talented person. Um, and once we understand that and we kind of realize that I can improve, and I think that's the most important thing, you know, to reinforce, because a lot of people do put these limits on themselves. And once I realize that I can improve, and I'm willing to kind of take this deliberate practice approach, and I'm willing to do the work, then I can be moving towards a life which I feel will be more fulfilling. And as I do the work, the motivation will come because I feel the success. I, I think you summarized it uh, amazingly well. Yeah. Um, just, just a couple of last little questions. Do you struggle with this yourself? Like, how are you at deliberate practice? Well, you know, I think most of my uh, activity, and, and, and I guess that at this point, you know, I, I don't have a teacher. I think I, when I was, uh, you know, as a graduate student and even as a postdoc, uh, you know, I was working with uh, senior researchers, and I remember that our first paper that appeared in science on the memory training that we did, uh, Bill Chase, my senior uh, colleague, he told me, well, you know, you're going to be first author, but then you're going to have to write the paper. And, and I think we're up to version 50 uh, before uh, he even sort of started working on it <laughs> and then eventually submitting it to it. And, and I think that process, you know, was extremely helpful for me to learn because it's sort of like, obviously, it was a little setting at times, you know, trying to do something that you thought was good and saying, well, you know, did you think about this? Did you think about that? And 
I would go back and sort of revise. But, but that kind of idea here of going through versions of things where you incrementally improve it, I think is kind of a, a really great model. And if you do have the teacher who is really willing to help you see what the problems are and at least giving you a chance to try to solve them yourself, I think that's when you're actually developing people that have a chance of making a contribution. Mm, so, it, it, it's, you know, and it goes back to what I said before, if you are trying to find motivation or you do want to change, to really look to and put those things behind you to help you move towards it as well. Right. And, and you need to find that teacher who is really willing to invest that amount of time in you. And, and I think that's really key. And, and I think teachers really appreciate when you have somebody who is really motivated and really wants to do their very best and in some ways only really want guidance here about things that they need to pay attention to so they can kind of incorporate that in, in, in how they're uh, producing products. Just, just last two little quick questions. Um, what, 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 are the, what are the criticisms you get? Well, I, I think there's been a lot of uh, kind of attempts to summarize our findings incorrectly. And uh, so I've spent a fair amount of time trying to explain at least how I view uh, at, uh, some of these uh, researchers and, and that it kind of includes even Gladwell yep. uh, summary of our 10,000 of his 10,000 hour rule that, you know, I, I think that idea here that when you look at, and if there is such a thing as talent, even the most talented spent an inordinate amount of time perfecting their skills. And obviously, you can't really expect anybody else to be able to attain those skills in less. And I think that's what the essence of kind of that uh, finding here about the hours. Now, the way Gladwell was talking about it as being something magical and being a response here of just putting in numerous hours, that obviously is, is something that I've tried to uh, kind of clarify that at least I don't believe that's a, a correct interpretation of our findings. Mm. Because we were only really looking at music students who were working with teachers who actually guided them, you know, to incrementally improve their performance, yeah. which is quite different from just basically playing music like the Beatles did in Hamburg, you know, for very long periods of time. Mm. And, and I think even my own example from earlier of my own piano playing, well, I'd put, you know, I didn't, hadn't done 10,000 hours, but I put a lot of time into my musicianship and I actually hadn't improved a lot until I actually went to a deliberate practice model. Um, lastly, um, uh, what, what are you finding really fascinating right now? Well, I, I, I think the issue here of motivation um, and basically how uh, you can actually help individuals to, you know, make that initial commitment and then basically how they can sustain uh, their motivation. Mm. I think that's something that I'm really interested in and, and I'm working with a few people here on, 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 on trying to kind of describe that because I think we are getting more and more knowledge here about the path that seems to work uh, for people to really improve. So then the next step, I guess, is uh, how can we actually help those individuals who want to make that journey, you know, and, and also maximize their chances so they're prepared for obstacle and challenges that are invariably going to uh, be encountered 
uh, on their way to uh, that end. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that that's something that I'm I'm just fascinated by, and also I'm interested here how people can apply this to their work environment because it seems that there's too many people who are not really engaged in their jobs. Yeah. And 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 I'm wondering here whether taking this sort of performance view of and also feeling like you're responsible here for you know what you're doing and that you can actually improve uh, the benefits to for your coworkers and whoever else you know that that you basically are serving in your job and and, and that is something that i find uh really exciting and 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 hoping that uh you know will that people will be interested in working on because i think that could could really you know, show here how these ideas can make a positive difference. Mm, well, and I think there is that thing of we want to be stimulated, don't we? We do want to, we want to, like, we all want, deep down, the, the greatest satisfaction of life is that kind of when we are contributing and growing and all those types of things. And, you know, there's so many people in the workplace who kind of feel wasted, you know, and, and if we can tap into that, that's a pretty powerful shift in things, isn't it? Well, I, I would I would love to uh, be able to contribute to that if I can. Yeah. Hey, Anders, um, I just appreciate I, – I, I can imagine you're a very, very busy man, so I just appreciate um, you coming on the show today. I just I just think your body of work is, is absolutely fantastic, and I think the influence you're having on the world is a very powerful thing. And um, just to, if people want to follow you, do you have a website? I know you, the book is peak, and I'll put a link to that on my website, but do you have some – Right. Uh, we, uh, Robert Poole and I have a website, uh, peak – the book in one word dot com uh and uh, and i think uh freakonomics uh radio is setting up an environment where people who are interested in acquiring a new skill uh and and they're uh talking about building kind of a, a website that would actually provide connection here so if you're interested in finding a teacher you know then you would be able to do that and also by providing links to all sorts of resources for people interested in developing performance in a particular area. Uh, so that might be something to kind of look out for. And, and I'm you know, trying to uh, contribute as much as I can here to that because I think that would actually be something that you know, would be helpful to uh, some people that I've encountered because they have that problem of finding a teacher that is really enthused here about helping people, especially people maybe in their middle age, you know, improve some skill uh, and, and have experience of having helped uh, other people previously. Well, and you finish your book up with this whole idea of imagine the possibility for humanity if we could all get to this higher level, if, if the percentage of us increased of the amount of people who learnt this way. And, and that's the exciting part. And, and you know, we, we this kind of way of thinking does seem to be coming more into the forefront of the, the kind of social consciousness. And um, it's just exciting work. I just love your work. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. I, I, you hopefully understand here. I, I love this. And, and love every opportunity here to get a chance to talk. And, and thank you so much for your great insights and, and questions. Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that interview. I, 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 loved, I loved it. I loved it. And one thing that was really cool was 
he was such a cool man. Like, he was, you know, sometimes in my show and in Iron Talk, and probably not so much in Iron Talk, Iron Talk, we've got such a well-known brand now that people were quite keen to come on our show. But in my own show, I, I, I shoot for the big hitters. Like, I really try to get the best thinkers in the world on my show around this whole idea of behaviours to create better performance in life. And it's obviously, it's a fitness show, and I do kind of try to focus on the beginner exerciser, but still, you know, to get someone like Anders Ericsson, to me, is a real coup, because this guy's an absolute rock star when it comes to thinking of expertise. And he was just so, so nice. Like, he sent me an email afterwards saying, geez, you did a really great job in the interview, you made me feel really comfortable. He was, he made me feel like he felt privileged that I was interviewing him. Now, now, I've got to be honest, he shouldn't feel privileged that I was interviewing him. You know, this guy is just an amazing person who just does such important work. But just his, you know, his gratitude he showed towards me was really, really special. So um, if you want to check out his book, I'll put a link to it in the show notes um, on an Amazon link on there. And you can check it out. Maybe we'll get some, some good summer reading. I highly recommend it. Obviously, lots of the stuff we talked about in the interview uh, in the book. But I really, really enjoyed the book. So check it out. Anyway, that's going to be pretty much this today's show. Excuse me, I did a little bit, bit of a burp there. <laughs> Had some bagels for breakfast. It's that summer season. A few bagels. I like my bagels and cream cheese. So, just want to say a big thank you to all the patrons for the year. Thank you so much for being a patron. If you aren't a patron and you want to support us, it's interesting. We look at our numbers and we get point like point zero eight. No, probably point eight of our listeners are patrons, so it's a very, very, very small percentage of people who listen to the show who are actually patrons patrons of the show, and I've got to say, for those people who are patrons, it makes a massive difference to what John and I can do, uh, things like updating the website, things like going to Kona, things like, you know, just keeping this show going, you know, but it does take time and effort to put the show in place, so just if you are a patron, Thank you so much for being a patron of the show. It really makes a difference. And if you aren't and you're thinking about it doing it, well, we, obviously John and I really encourage it because it just, again, helps us put more energy into creating a better show. And this year, hopefully you've felt that there's been a, a kind of lift in our game. We're trying to kind of always um, evolve and improve what we're doing. So there we go. If you want to become a patron, go to dip, 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 I am talk to me. Anyway, if you're listening to this before New Year's, have a wonderful New Year's. I hope you had a great Christmas. And I'll be back next week. And then John will be back in a couple of weeks from now as well. Here we go. Uh, I'm Russ. I'm Endo. Train smart. Kia kaha.